Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by MarketingForAttorneys.com, helping attorneys and law firms clarify and upgrade their marketing and messaging to help grow their firms while reducing reliance on pay-per-click advertising. Visit MarketingForAttorneys.com to book your free consultation today. My guest today is Stephen Colby. Steve is a partner at Ryman Law, an international semi-virtual law firm. He has been a CTO and CEO and works in the world of Silicon Valley startups. Steve's primary work is with patents, but he has a big view into the worlds of entrepreneurship and cutting-edge technology. Should be a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining me today, Steve, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. And it's Ramon Law. Oh, thank you. Ramon Law. Excellent. Uh, So, Steve, tell me, what was the transition like from going from being a scientist to being a lawyer? It's something I would never have expected. It was totally out of the blue. (laughs) I started off like everybody else in college. I was good at math and science. So I did math and science, chemistry and math degrees. I went to grad school in a really interesting area called analytical chemistry, which is basically an instrument builder. When you see people in the movies putting blood samples into into some device and it spins around and magically comes out a, a pretty picture of all the drugs that were in that person's body, that's the type of instrument I built. Of course, the movies are also a little bit not quite on, <laughs> but um, that's the kind of stuff that we make. And it meant that I did a lot of a really broad variety of stuff, including I taught electronics for years. I was a pretty good machinist, you know, optics and lasers. Those were the days when you wire, build your own computers from scratch, wire data boards and stuff like that. And so I you know, got a really good background. And that was also, I, I did some of my first patents as I was, when I was a grad student and as a postdoc. And that kind of got me into the, I was an inventor, I knew that. I had a whole, I had a whole binder of inventions. And uh, now I look back at that sometimes and go, oh my gosh, that that worked. That was no good. And after grad school, I went to work for a scientific instrument company. We built stuff uh, for big companies like uh, back then HP and Perkin Elmer and the types of companies that you might see in a laboratory somewhere. And that was most of the 90s for me. I really loved it. I loved doing trade shows and selling. I was basically a CTO responsible for everything under the sun from being manning the trade show booth to uh, figuring out what cl- products our clients wanted and doing the, the products in CAD so they could be cut in the machine shop. And that was a lot of fun. And then 
I spent the last part of that term between 97 and 2000 commuting from Mountain View, California back to New Jersey. And that was a tough commute time. That was no Zoom picnic. <laughs> it was Continental Airlines red eyes. And so I did that for three years. And my wife at the time finally said, you got to get a job out here. And I'd already had a bunch of patents. I think I probably had three issued ones and a few on the way. And I knew I couldn't afford patent attorneys. And I liked writing. And so I went to work for a law firm that was hiring. These were desperate times in Silicon Valley where they would hire anybody who could write. And um, I could write and I'd written some patents and they looked at them and they literally hired me. They interviewed me in the morning and took me to lunch and then said, can you start now? <laughs> it was pretty, pretty fun. And that was the start. Excellent. And so from there, that essentially drove you to say, okay, what am I doing? Like, you got all these attorneys here. I'm just working for them. I may as well become one. And that sort of drove you. Yeah. Into so patent law is a really nice way, place to go for somebody who has a technical degree. Some of the comparisons are like in the old days, I'd work on a project or an instrument for a year or two, a lot of software code and maybe doing some robotics or a lot of times the lab testing things. And after, I was the type of guy who was after a year, I, I'd want to move, do something else. <laughs> and in patents, I am literally today, I'm doing an AR, VR project, and I'm going to do something for IVF. And I'm going to have a meeting with a new client uh, over coffee now that we can do one-on-ones again. All of this packed every day. It's uh, some new exciting technology, really broad. So it's a lot of fun. Now, in patents, you can be a, what's called a patent agent. And a patent agent means you don't have to go to law school. You can study for the patent agent exam and there's some good courses out there. And it's given by the US Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO. And I it took me a couple of months to study for that and I took it and became a patent agent. And so that gives me a license to practice patent law. I can't help with somebody's divorce or their car repo or all the other things I get asked for now that I'm an attorney. But I, you, as a patent agent, I can practice patent law and prosecute patents. Prosecuting patents means getting them arguing that they should be issued with the patent office and doing the back and forth and stuff like that until the patent gets out and issued. So that's the type of work I can do. And I could do as a patent agent. Then. I took the big step and I went to law school at age 40. And that was a totally, and I would have believed med school, you know, if somebody had told me 10 years earlier when I was 30, I would have believed med school or business school, getting an MBA because I liked business. And I would never have guessed going to law school. And it was actually at, at 40 years old, I went to a great school, Santa Clara University, which has a night program. So it was three and a half years because I went over summers too. And it was actually a lot more fun than I expected. There was some, I don't know if you've seen the movie Paper Chase, right? the old mm -hmm. movie where they sit there and ask you questions, randomly ask people in the, in the classroom questions. And there were some professors who were really good at that. So it became a really intellectually much more stimulating than I expected. And they, what they were good at was asking somebody a question and you'd get get it right and then ask you another question and you get that right and they'd keep asking until you couldn't 
So they drill down to your to, to the th the thinking that you've done about the problem you know, or the case law or whatever it is, and and get you to push yourself. And it was really a lot more fun than I would have ever expected. Of course, I was working pretty much full time and then going to school roughly two thirds time. So it was hundred hour week every week for years. That was a lot of a lot of stress, but I had a great time. The average age at Santa Clara in the part-time program back then was 32 years old. And 10% of the students in the part-time program had either an MD or a PhD. So it gives you a pretty good idea. It was a totally different experience than normal law school would have been. The average age being about 10 years older and pretty much everybody had some significant life experiences. We we had one guy in my class who worked in Salinas, California, which is basically the the green where where most of the U the best vegetable growing place in the United States. And, and every couple of weeks he'd bring in some vegetable, like a whole case of it. And so his day job was working out in the farms, right in the night going to law school. And so you'd come in and there'd be this big huge thing of perfect asparagus sitting on your your desk. <laughs> And it would be asparagus day and we'd all sit there and nibble on raw asparagus during the lecture. So that was fun. I had a really a good time. It was a good transition. It's one of the things I advise people now with uh, who ask me about going to law school is you're a better attorney if you know something about something other than the law. So for example, if somebody's interested in entertainment law, going and working in the entertainment business for five years and then going to law school means that you will be so much better at advising your clients because you'll know their space and you'll know what kind of things you know, you'll know their language they will talk to you for a few minutes and they will say oh you're a lawyer you t talk just like one of us and there is this bonding that occurs right the, the client believes you you know emphasize with what they're doing with their problems and you really understand them and that really makes clients happy and it also makes you a much better attorney my pat answer now is for somebody who's finishing college is do something you really like and then even if it's something where the job wouldn't be a lot so somebody might decide they they want to go and get a they want to be an attorney go get a certified nursing certification, right? A certified nursing assistant or something like if you want to go into medicine or be a paramedic or go and work at a, in a hospital administration and then go and do law school and do uh, law related to medicine or all the things you've learned about or whatever the subject is that you think you might want to be working in. It could be environmental law. It could be being a social worker and working in on the streets in a big city and then going in and being a, law, a lawyer to represent those types of people and so on. So that's a really great combination when I see attorneys that have other life experiences and skill. I'm always, I always can trust that they're going to be able to connect with their clients. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I started uh, law school, I guess I was 33, 34, somewhere around there. I already had two kids, had been in the army for years, had done a lot of different things. And our school was probably half K through JD. They just came straight out of undergrad into law mm -hmm. school. 
And I think that's actually one of the biggest things that builds up the myth about how difficult law school is. There's such a huge concentration of people who've literally never held a job or never been responsible for anything. And maybe we're still smart enough to just skate through undergrad without really trying that hard. Yeah. And didn't necessarily build up the best time management skills and things like that. And I would come in, I'd just basically, I would do law school from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Wouldn't do law school stuff at, the, at night, wouldn't do it on the weekends, just so I could be present with my kids then. Meanwhile, there'd be young 22, 23 year olds like pulling all nighters, just like killing themselves. And so you're just letting yourself do that. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And I did definitely see a lot more success from, or just a, a lot more ease from people who had experienced things where there's the demands of an employer or parenting or whatever. A lot of the non traditional students, even though they had way more on their plate, they're able to deal with it better just because yeah. they've had that extra life experience that I think really serves people so well that even if it's just two, three years in industry, whatever it may be, really helps people. And hey, if you're really just addicted to want to go and work in a law firm, the other thing I found was that people who had been paralegals just crushed it. They got into legal writing and they're like, this is a joke. I know how to do this. No problem. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, they would take all the highest grades. It was like a level playing field, so to speak. But uh yeah, I think that's so hugely important. And it gives such a richer experience to law school to meet people who've been out in the world and have done a variety of things. And yeah. So many cool people. Yeah. Whether it's doctors, whether it's people with PhDs or MBAs, other advanced degrees and stuff. It's really interesting. And imagine how clients feel about it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, they're like, oh, this person gets me. And that's yeah. when I, so my job now, I'm a patent attorney, right? So I am a patent attorney that I do mostly what's called patent prosecution, which means I write patents. You know, I'll interview somebody for a couple of hours, and based on that interview, I'll generate a 30 to 40 page paper. And I bill for that paper, right? You know, for that time for the writing the paper. And then I go and I do, and then I argue with that submitted as a patent application to the patent office, and it comes back usually almost 95% of the first time it's a rejection. And you have to then argue with the patent office why you're right or maybe change what you're claiming or going back and forth. And so it's a pretty interesting, I do a lot of writing, but working with the clients, uh, being able to c connect with them. I work in Silicon Valley mostly, and I'm based in Reno, or but I have an office in both around at Lake Tahoe and in Silicon Valley. And the clients, if the, if you can speak their language, it makes them so happy. It, it makes gives you loyal clients. You can recruit clients. One of the things they don't teach in law school is business development. And the difference between somebody who's in their 50s as an attorney and just humming along, taking work from other attorneys and doing, being a worker bee, and the attorney that has dozens of clients and is feeding work to other attorneys, keeping them their plates full, is the ability to go out there and sell yourself. And because of my technical background, when I go to a startup and they want to talk about AI or AR or laser systems or semiconductors or electronics, the call I had before this meeting was a, a really cool multi-thread processor, deep silicon tech. It was really great. And being able to connect with those clients and having the background is really cool. The other fun thing is if you've had sales experience, if you are comfortable walking into a cocktail party and working the crowd, and, and now I can go to a trade show, maybe I go 
before COVID, I would go, for example, to the semiconductor and solar technologies, Semicon trade show in San Francisco. And I'd probably come back with a hundred business cards, people that I've talked to in, in two days worth of, of working the floor. So going out there and selling is a really big part of being an attorney because that's how you get clients. And if you can sell well, it makes your life a really much easier. So part of that pre-law school experience, if it's selling something or politics, being out there and knocking on doors, that's a really nice characteristic to have developed by the time you finish law school. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It was really fascinating just spending time in big law as a summer associate and they'd have a once a week marketing meeting and it would just be like a working lunch and the marketing person would be like, hey, here's some tips for rainmaking and let's all read this rainmaking book together. And it's for the most part, just like ad hoc and people would do their best to just make it all work. But the, the fact is in that whole business model is basically work a new associate to death for five years, 60 to 80 hours a week. And then on the side, they can do their own, they can do their own business development. And then it's just like, they're not taught how to do it. It's time mm. taken out of their regular day that compensated over the long term because of it, it helps for partner track and things like that. But I feel like the proper incentives and education aren't really there to get the best results that would maximize profit for the law firms themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things is that the law firms are, especially the bigger ones are, you know, just cash machines and the lives of the young associates are the fodder, which is fed into the boiler <laughs> in order to generate the steam to keep the whole thing going. <laughs> and yeah, if you're, an, that's something, and you can make it fun. If you like golf, okay, do golf, do the golf club. If you like, I like tech events. I go to a lot of startup tech events and when they have them, right, normal times. And it's really fun to be able to go to these events and, and see all the latest technology and seminars and talk with people out there one-on-one -on -one about their technology. That's, that is, I really enjoy that as part of my job. So an associate, if they can start fitting those in an evening a week, going to some, whether it's ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery, or IEEE event, or a startup event, or whatever type of thing that they, those are tech things, right? Uh, or it's a tennis club, or a sailing club, whatever they can do to get out there and start building a network is really useful. Because that's how they build stuff up. And eventually, if you can find something that you enjoy, that also you can make into client a client generator, then you've got it made. Oh, definitely. So what are the pros and cons to our patent system here? And if you could improve one thing about the patent system, what would it be? It's pretty good. There's a balance in our patent system. So there are companies that in industries that don't like it. So Apple doesn't really like it that much. Google doesn't like it that much. IBM I don't know. They license about a billion dollars a year in IP, <laughs> but they probably don't like it either. They probably do. So the big companies that have a built-in monopoly and have lots of power and money, they don't really need the patents. The small companies, like an early stage startup, needs to have the patent. And this is a really big distinction. So you'll see organizations like EFF, the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which I, which I kind of support, but I do not support them on IP, I support them on 
things like privacy and so on. I think that it's really the big, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples and the Amazons that right now that don't like patents because it doesn't, patents don't do too much for them. But if you're an early stage startup and you're talking to somebody that's gonna buy you, they're doing math. They're saying, should I, if I'm Google, I might say, well, should I buy this little startup or should I put a hundred engineers on it and, and put drop a couple of, a few million dollars in marketing and get to where they are in six months, right? There's a spreadsheet, somebody does this calculation and that really puts a cap on the value of the startup. For a small company, a p patents can be a multiplier of their value. So a startup that could be worth X might be worth X plus 50% or you know five times X with a really good patent portfolio. It really depends on the case. So if there's a good patent portfolio, then the calculation that the big company does is a lot different. Okay, but we want their IP. We wanna make sure our competitors don't get the IP. So actually, maybe we should think about actually you know, buying them for millions of dollars. And I have clients that are bought every year. The best I have seen was a company that was 33 months old and it went for $380 million. So that's less than three years. And it was pretty impressive. I would, I, I'd like to think that the patent portfolio made a big difference. In that case, the, the CEO was actually a really nice guy and easy to work with. And I think that probably made an even bigger difference. They had a competitor that didn't get bought and within a month had closed their doors, right? And gone out for zero, right? So that gives you an idea. Everybody at the, at, on my, at, who worked at my client became a millionaire, but the other company, they just had to walk away. And it was uh, some, in some part, it was the quality of the patent portfolio. So it can be really important for startups. So that's kind of nice. I'm wandering, go ahead, ask another question. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And so, You've seen a lot of really amazing cutting edge technologies. And what are you most excited about seeing develop over the next decade? I think AI is coming even stronger. It's gonna be, I've seen more and more really high quality applications. Technology now where it's used in medicine, it's used in of course, image processing and robotics. Let's see what else. So AI is getting better and it's getting designed better. There's better new new ways of uh, learning and stuff like that are really coming up. I am seeing, I do work for a company called Oculus, which you've probably heard of, which is now owned by Facebook. Yeah. Um, and they, so I have a little window into what is coming in AR, VR. And it's pretty cool. We're, I, I think in 10 years, you're going to have a stylish looking pair of glasses that have a, a nice heads up display in it and we'll do, we'll do it really great. So I, it's going to be a lot of fun. Medical things I'm seeing a lot of. What other stuff that is really cool lately? Agriculture is fun. Medical devices. Some, uh, so I've seen Recently, some done some really cool surgical devices. Robotics and surgery go together really well. What else am I doing? Yeah, it's it's fun because I get to see into so many different little bits of technology. What else do I be really happy with? What I did today. Batteries are big. People, there's so much money going into that that it's really impressive. So energy things. There's going to have to be. There's going to be more and more money on green tech. 
of whether they like it or not. So for example, one of the things I do is I judge every year for the, uh, the clean tech open competition, which is a competition for green technology companies. It's worldwide and, and they put a lot of money into a lot of interesting startups. And so what about the legal field? Like how do you see technology changing things over the next year? How's that, or over the next decade and how's that going to evolve? I'm seeing some, just the fact, so Ramon is a semi-virtual law firm. It, we have always been a virtual law firm. COVID didn't really make much of a bump for us. <laughs> we do have a, about 38 offices around the world for 135 attorneys, but most attorneys work at home and a lot of the offices are just conference rooms or work workspaces. And so that's pretty, we get that. I haven't seen AI working in patents so much. I've seen some attempts at doing patent profiling and searching and characterizing patents, but often it comes down to single words that can make or break a patent application that it's hard really to do there. I see it in big litigations. I do very little. I do some litigation, but not much, right, personally. But the litigation that we, people who have big cases where there's hundreds of thousands or millions of pages of, of documents to, be, to go through, 15 years ago, I had the experience of, look, of, of reviewing 100,000 pages of documents. And it's like page after page, monotonous for hours, flashing in front of your eyes. And it's funny. Yeah. It, nowadays, they use AI to do more of that, especially when it's millions of pages. You can't, it's, it doesn't make sense to do it by hand. So that's, you know, type of stuff. I do see, you know, in lawyers now, Zoom is in. There are courts that are going to allow it and they're going to continue to allow it. Probably. It just makes things really efficient. Attorneys not having to drive 45 minutes to a courthouse and wait out front for an hour. They can be on a on an electronic queue. And I think that's going to be used in some cases. It's useful for me where it's always been. Zoom has always been useful for me for doing uh, meeting with clients because I have clients all over the world. You know, Asia, Australia, nobody in Africa now, but certainly Europe and Eastern Europe, Ukraine are all places where my clients are based. And so it's pretty, pretty fun. But uh, yep, that's it. Those are the tech things. I love having a good computers. I'm sitting in an office. I have, you know, I do webinars or podcasts on a pretty regular basis. So I have a, an umbrella lamp above me with a nice warm color light. I have two 32 inch screens and I have a green screen curtain hanging behind me. So I can do pretty high quality video presentations and stuff like that. That kind of stuff is fun. I like networking online. It's pretty good. That's been a real lifesaver because normally I would be going out and doing events at least two to three, if not four times a week. If it weren't for the internet, it would have been really strange. So. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see people take this all in different directions. I definitely miss, I, I love running a booth at a trade show. Like, I think that's really fun. But at the same time, like, I'm also a pretty shy extrovert. So, like, I'll hold court. I'll, I'll talk to people all day. But I don't break the ice usually. Like, I need the introduction or I need to, like, draw people in, which is why I love to have a booth. If it's, like, a regular sort of cattle call networking event, it's just kind of, uh, I'll just, like, wander around until someone talks to me or whatever. So I might dress, like, a little more ostentatiously, draw people in, things like that. Yeah. But that's why it's been really nice, like, with different online networking opportunities that 
you, know, you just kind of jump right in, like all that kind of goes away. And so I've, you know, been able to dramatic. I just moved to a new city in the last year during the pandemic, which of course that was an mm. interesting experience in and of yeah. itself, like getting, not really getting a new experience of a new city for like over a year because, you know, things are shut down. And, but I was able to actually over the, just the last couple of months, like join a networking group that then has a lot of online infrastructure that's built out. Mm. It's really cool and enabled me to, 10 or 20x my network in a matter yeah. of months it's been really incredible and so there has been there's been some silver linings to the, the carnage of the last year for sure yeah i i have had the green the silver the what is the thing about the edge of the the cloud the <laughs> uh, the is that i got to spend a time with my daughter i have a, a daughter who's about to turn eight and she homes video schooled and I got to spend so much more time with her this last year than I ever would have. It was really, I'm very thankful for that. And again, the online networking, I work with a group called Provisors, which is probably one of the high-end groups and yeah. it's fantastic. I probably do there three, four meetings a week of some sort, nice. different types. And it's pretty good. That has definitely replaced going out every evening. The thing about going out every evening is you either get, chicken on a stick or you get uh, Costco pizza. And I call it the chicken <laughs> on the stick diet. And then you go to events where it's okay, there's also drink. I don't really want to have go out drinking three or four nights a week. It's not all that good for me. And yeah. So yeah, it's, there's some bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm not looking forward to chicken on a stick again. I haven't had that in over a year. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming <laughs> yeah no it'll be back i'm doing i'm uh, pretty careful ha having a tech background and i have a pretty good background in biochemistry and stuff like that it's just, and i had read about 15 years ago the the book the great influenza which was about i think it was by barry somebody like that that was about the 18 18 18 19 pandemic and so anybody who'd read that pretty much knew what was coming <laughs> once once it starts you go oh Yep, it's probably going to be about the same. There's going to be a couple of cycles. You're looking at least 15 to 24 months. Unfortunately, we have a, a vaccine now, but it was people had the same problems back then. People were uproar over the closing of movie theaters and schools were closed. There wasn't any Zoom option, but there were riots. President Wilson, millions of Americans died, and President Wilson never ever once mentioned the pandemic. He never talked about it at all. Any, any public event. <laughs> so I was like, whoa. <laughs> of course, there was less they could do back then. But yeah, I got my vaccine as soon as possible. So. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. Yeah. And it's fun to be on the legal side, but also really to understand the biochemistry of the vaccine. So I can go and people say, oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, come on. <laughs> and sit down and explain how it really works. And it's in the vaccine technology that they've come out with is going to be used in future, like influenza and other vaccines. It's really an improvement over five years ago. So it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of science and chemistry advance that happened. It's really cool. Oh, definitely. I've actually, yeah, met with some people like that are working on things like chewable vaccines and just continuing to like not resting on their laurels, just continuing to push in. And how much can we do in advance? How much can we build out? 
to have a store of different technologies to help prevent the yeah. next pandemic because yeah. it's not an if it's just a when yeah, you know? yeah. so it's like oh is this going to be a 10 on every decade thing eventually or can we keep it to, it's random you know, it's random once a century or it's yeah who random mute random mutations yep. in some bat or something that gets into some mongoose that gets onto a person so right now when there's so many people like in brazil and india they're sick each person is a petri dish that is making new variants. So yeah, we're going to get variants probably, but I think we'll probably be. In. I'm now at the point where I'm, if if I'm in San Francisco, I'm wearing a mask outside. People are generally still doing that, but but they're now indoor dining and stuff. And I'm I'm having one-on-one -on -one meetings with clients and colleagues. Not I haven't I'm not ready to go to a big trade show, but I'm definitely doing the one-on-ones. That that's it. I have got one this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been interesting. It's it's pretty wide open, wide open here in Phoenix, and and to some extent has been the whole time. That's certainly why we were the number one COVID hotspot in the world per capita twice in the last year. Mm. But since the vaccine has come out, it's been especially in the Phoenix metro area. I moved vaccinated millions and millions of people, and because everyone's just okay, let's just get it over with. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get past it and. So it's definitely been interesting because I, I was in Irvine, California, which first everything was like, save the masks, don't wear a mask. And then it eventually went like every 90 plus percent of people wearing a mask, everything is locked down. Didn't take my kids anywhere for two straight months until we moved here. I, walked, I took them to the store one day because I had to and it was like yeah. maybe 20 percent of people wearing masks at the time. And it was just like, wait, what's going on here? And yeah. it was like a totally different world. Yeah, I was... Um, so in Orange, I was in Newport Beach in Irvine last June, and then I was coming between San Francisco and there, and it was a, a, a day and night. Totally, there. It, it was really surprising. Yeah, there was no, there was no pandemic ever in in, in Orange County, <laughs> according to, yeah, yeah. I was really surprised at that. So, cool. so Steve, I'd love to know. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Ooh. I think I'm better at relationships than I used to be. <laughs> Let's see. That You want this in a, a legal... Any context is fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, a lot of, I'd say half the people who answer this question mention their divorce. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a no, wide range of answers. I, I've, I'm, I'm, I think that as you get older, you get better at hopefully... You get better at handling relationships, and that's some. Or you, at least, thinking about working on them more. And so that's what have I failed that made me better? <laughs> Is it okay to just think for five minutes about no failure? No, I've worked on political campaigns that failed, but it was fun. And that going out, I worked. I must have been ten years ago now. I worked at a, on a campaign, and I came from California, and I worked the Iowa caucuses for two weeks in Iowa. I had a good time. I actually had breakfast once at this hotel where I was staying and Bill Clinton sat down at the table next to me and I invited him over. You know, he, his wife was running at the time. <laughs> and uh, getting out there and walking at, in six degrees from door to door and then actually working a precinct and standing on a cafeteria table at a, some high school and trying to get people to come over and do that type of skill is what makes you a better networker. It makes you willing, able to talk and communicate with people 
And especially if you talk, you knock on somebody's door and they're not really into your candidate, then you have a situation where you're going to you find a, a common ground or try to make a connection with them in some way so that they at least remember it as a good experience. And that is really useful when you're dealing with people in a business, in a legal situation. All those types of things are, I think that's where I initially doing politics in college and then later in life is where I initially learned to work, to be totally upfront about working a room. And I'll, I will get a cocktail party or some reception for some event or whatever at a charity event or something. I will work the room from one end to the other and you know, figure out exactly who I want to talk to and, and who's interesting and, and meet and try to talk to people for the right amount of time. And it's pretty cool. I've met really interesting people that way. So mm. I remember once being at a gas station in Southern Ida, Montana, and pulling over and pumping the gas and going in and getting some water or whatever. And there's this, like this really old guy who looks weathered, okay? <laughs> Think of a weathered guy. And he must've been in his nineties and he's sitting there on the bench, sipping a cold beer. And I went up and I started talking to him. And he ended up to be, he had, was a miner, literally. And he'd been mining in Utah and Montana for decades. And that's why this is sometimes doing a little, running a little cattle, as he would say, this character out of the early 1900s, literally, <laughs> with chaps on and riding gear. I'm sure he had a horse around back somewhere. But yeah, if you get the, you, if you're the type of, if you learn to be the type of person who can approach people comfortably and authentically, it helps you in no matter what you're going to do in life. And even meeting strange strange old coots at a gas station in Montana. Mm, I'll agree. Yeah. So Steve, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I'm going to recommend two right now. One is called The Enlightenment. And this was somebody, a really good financial planner in named Dan Beck in my provisors group recommended this to me. And the other one, and I'm going to get you the author of that in just a minute. And the other one is I'm in the middle of Mark Twain's Roughing It. And so I've been driving between Reno and, Cal and the Bay Area a lot. And if you see a guy on the road on I-80 who's just laughing hysterically while trying to stay in his lane, that's me. Okay, you can picture it. I'm sitting there cruising along and the car's weaving a little bit. And I hope like, hopefully I'm not getting pulled over. But uh, I'm at, like a couple of hours into it. And it's just a description of going across the country on, on a covered wagon. And he'll take the most simple thing, like a dog chasing a coyote or a broken mirror, and present it in a way where you're laughing. Mm. Yeah. And so it, it's just... And, and it's free on Audible on a lot of, you can get it for free because it's uh, way out of copyright, Mark Twain stuff. The book that I, about the enlightenment is called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And it's makes, it's a good perspective on where we are now compared to where we've been in the past. And I like it because I've always thought that people are narrow. They only see the recent past. They don't things are so bad now, we're in a horrible case, this needs fixing, blah, blah, blah. But, and I've heard from 20 year olds how this is the worst time ever, right? 
what do you know? <laughs> um, it really puts things in perspective. You know, I don't agree with all of it. There's some stuff like, okay, you've hit this point a little too many times and you're pulling it a little far, but really I can summarize the book in asking what you one question. If you were gonna choose to be born, to re, be reborn, born sometime, and you had no control over what continent you were, what race you were, what gender you are, whatever, but you could pick the year that you were going to be born in, what would you pick? In other words, if I picked 1900, I might be in somewhere in the middle of Africa or in China. If I were to pick 1950, I could be in China during the Cultural Revolution. There's there I could be. If, I don't want to pick the Middle Ages, plague and pestilence, all that. So what year would you pick? And the, when you come out of reading this book, in the end, you go, yeah, you're. It's really right. Now is the kids that are being born now, or the people like us that are alive now. Assuming we're both alive, it's the good time. This is actually looking back historically, and it makes you feel good, especially coming out of this pandemic. It's a fun book to read that really can lift your spirits. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Like really for all the carnage that goes on now, like it's really that we just know more about it, but it's actually basically the most peaceful time in human history yeah. in spite of all the war. I was, I turned 18 a few days before 9-11. So my entire adult life has just been a shit show of endless war. war. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it has nothing on like the 30 years war, the 100 years, so many things in the past where it was just constant carnage between every country in Europe just fighting each other constantly. And so people just, it's hard to really get that perspective because we have such better access to crazy stuff going yeah. on all over the world. You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. This is horrible. This is horrible. Yeah. And so it's always been horrible. There's actually yeah. a lot less of it now. We just know about more of it. And I think that there's going to be some waves of the information that we're exposed to is pretty uncontrolled now. People who decide to get their information from Facebook, their news and their information, don't realize what Dan Rather used to be like. Right. Or not, or Walter, uh, not Dan Rather so much, but Walter Cronkite. Everybody right. in America would sit down at 5.30 and watch Walter Cronkite for half an hour or whatever it was. And some of his moments with assassinations or with landing on the moon, it just, it's, it's like everybody trusted this person completely. It was the idea that he would tell, lie to you or try to, to manipulate you or mislead you. And I think we will eventually find people like that who can think the amount of bad information will be reduced, I'm hoping, or people will figure it out. But we'll see. It might be a rough ride for 50 years. Who knows? Right? <laughs> Yeah, it'd be really nice to see that come back around a bit. I was born in 83, and I remember as a kid, every night, my parents would watch Peter Jennings' World News Tonight. Yeah. And so it's Oklahoma City bombing, Atlanta, Olympic bombing, things like that. Fall of the Berlin Wall, really significant events. And you had those few trusted sources Trusts. that you could yeah. absolutely rely on. And now it's just, it's all about clicks and yeah. balls and, those, and getting that attention. And so it's Some a lot of those sources, I mean, I have an online Wall Street uh, New York Times subscription, and you know the, and the Washington Post and the New York Times and LA Times. Those have always, and and BBC, right? You have BBC News. Wherever you were in the world, you could get 
their outlook on things, which was sometimes a bit different. So yeah, go. I my advice to people is go back and look at the traditionally really authoritative news sources that have been around for a very long time. It it was probably back in the days of Hearst newspapers before when newspaper when news sources were really not that good or as yeah. crazy as they are now. Right. Yeah. So. Steve, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. Really enjoyed right. getting to speak with you. And this brings me to my final question of the day. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? <sighs> kindest or nicest? Oh. Yeah. Oh, I was adopted. <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy. And I have adopted kids too. And yeah, and so that's pretty good. And I know who my both parents are, which is nice. And they're great. So I have a a pretty big extended family now. But yeah, that was uh, getting raised by two wonderful parents. It was great. Uh, That was fantastic. I'm really lucky. Love that. Steve, again, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to get to speak with you. Great. Thank you much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Bye-bye. So today's episode was brought to you by marketingforattorneys.com. If you're an attorney looking to grow your law firm and ditch the crowded field of pay-per-click advertising, then visit marketingforattorneys.com to book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, Wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness.